Cool, so thank you for having me at uh, Not Your Everyday Podcast. Um, it's Melanie Richards. She has been a very good friend to me. Um, I'm super excited for today's show. Um, and I've got loads of questions for you, of course. Um, I just want to say thank you for being on my platform. Um, and I'm just super excited to kind of get into it um, and learn more about your story, more about like the day in the life of Melanie, um, how did Melanie get to where she is now? Um, and really, I think for me, what I'm quite interested in is the story of inspiration, motivation, challenge, um, being a, a woman at such a senior position, but also a champion of diversity, equality, but also a very strong-minded businesswoman as well, and how do you balance you know, the two? Uh, and I know it's difficult, um, but, you know, you've, you've been at the top, you've seen what's it like in closed doors. And hopefully we can have a very honest conversation about the moments of growth. So not just when, uh, during KPMG, but just in general, like how did you get to overcome those, those challenges? Um, and hopefully inspire somebody who's listening, um, wherever they are in their career to, to pursue their dreams, but also, to grow beyond their everyday self. Well, thank you very, very much for having me. I'm glad we finally got here. Perfect. And uh, I, ho I hope that I can give some sound counsel, whether it'll be inspiration or it'll be everybody else will be the judge of that. But uh, I'm really looking forward to the conversation. So thanks for having me. No worries. All right, cool. <laughs> Highlights of your life story in one minute. So people who don't know you has got a quick glimpse about who you are um, as a person. Okay. So I'm going to start the clock. And if it goes over a minute, it's fine. Let's, let's just do it. All right, cool. <laughs> Three, two, one, go. Starting with the most important thing in my life, three men. Okay. My husband, Nick, and my two boys, Edward and Christian, 24 and 21. The most important thing that ever happened to me in that order. Uh, and I guess uh, very other brief life things. Um, half my career in banking, half my life at KPMG, well, half it feels like my life, half my career. Mm. And um, a really, really varied, I think the, the thing that stands out most for me is I never had a plan. And uh, anybody who thinks you can have a plan, particularly in this world, I think you can have a little mini plans, but you can't have a big plan. And I'm really glad I didn't have a big plan. Mm. Um, other things about me that you wouldn't know, I like singing. Um, and I used to do it more than in the shower, but now it's just in the shower. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> um, and I care deeply about how people feel. Uh, so I don't know if that's what you wanted in your minute, but that's all you're getting. Okay, perfect. So you was, if I stop it now. That's seconds. Oh, just over a minute. Ah, come well, on. No, but it's one minute, one, one minute, one second. Ah, so it's perfect. Okay, okay. Okay, so tell, tell me about um, your most proudest achievement, one or two. Is, isn't it interesting that you asked me to talk about my life and I purposely spoke about my boys first and they are my proudest achievement. Well, they are proudest achievement because clearly yeah. I didn't do it on my own. I <laughs> played some small part in the Just production small, of our kids. Um, and so look, you know, it would be crazy if I said anything else in my mind because, you know, that's just such an awesome thing is to have have kids it's not for everybody and not everybody does end up having kids but for me it was uh, it was an unexpected and i say unexpected much longer story but unexpected uh, joy and i think the the other um proud proudest achievement i suppose is 
You know, I just look back on my career and um, in, even in the last six months, there's, there have been many moments, but the last six months um, I ended up, as you know, Olu, running uh, KPMG for a period of time. And um, I would have loved to have done it in different circumstances, not because Bill, our chairman at the time, had COVID, uh, but, but I had a great time pulling together a fantastic leadership team and working with a bunch of great people and watching uh, the people across our business um, really respond in ways that I couldn't possibly have imagined and, and people continuing to do so. So, you know, it's actually quite recent, but, that, you know, my, my life's littered. I'm very blessed with, with mm. lots and lots of moments. And so I think it depends on when you catch someone. The one that will always be oh. there is the boys yeah. uh, because the boys are a constant. But um, lots of other things but that at the moment would feel like something to feel quite proud of so what was it about that moment that made, made it feel proud to you well you know i hate to use the word unprecedented but who knew we were going to move fourteen thousand people online mm. uh who knew that we were going to be walking around wearing face masks and um and dealing with all sorts of things in our lives and so i don't feel it to be honest with you, my pride isn't necessarily in myself. My pride is in mm. the people around me and the organ. I, I take great energy from other people and watching how people have coped uh, uh, in what are really, really challenging circumstances. Hopefully we're getting closer and closer to sort of seeing if there is an end in sight, that there mm. is an end in sight. But, you know, it's been a pretty tough time. And so it, it's amazing to me how people have responded, both inside kind of in a work environment, but also more generally. Yeah. Um, and obviously, I, I still work at KPMG and I was one of the 14,000 who made that change, my migration from offline to online, from you know, in-person to virtual. And I could say just from being um, an employee that it was a good transition, very smooth. Um, I was really impressed by how the firm got everybody to work on Microsoft Teams, essentially, um, and still run day-to-day -day business operations. Um, it was perfect. That um, was a very nervous moment for all of us. And, <laughs> and all I'll say to you is that I'm so pleased that that's how it felt from your kind of perspective. But what I'll tell you now is, is people would be lying to you if you didn't if they didn't say you know that in in the background you mm. know there were a whole bunch of people running very very hard very fast to try and make sure that it felt that smooth because the one thing we all needed and we all need is to know that there is some consistency in our life when things are going completely a little bit awry and, mm. and you know there's no question that a pandemic has, has made feel, things feel a lot a lot different but mm. yeah no I'm, I'm glad it felt that way I can tell you now didn't always feel that way at the top. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I can imagine. So you, can you tell us about your career at KPMG? How did you go from, I don't know where you started, but I know you joined in 2000. Um, and I think it, is it 2012 you became UK part, you were part of the UK board. Um, but uh, rather than me explain it, can you tell us briefly your career story? Um, and how did you get to deputy chair? Well, I should probably confess to the fact that it would be lovely to think that I've only been working <laughs> for, for KPMG, but that, okay, would, yeah, that, that would be really nice, wouldn't it? But then that would be implausible because yeah. I've been working for nearly 40 years. I think it's 38, 39 years, right? And so I had a, a whole career before I joined KPMG. Yeah. I had um, um, about 18 years in banking. 
uh, 15 of them I spent at NatWest. Um, and uh, maybe it's always good when you're when you talk through your kind of your kind of life story in that sense in more than a minute. Mm. Um, but I think that one of the things that I would say is that uh, many people are very surprised that I'm not a graduate. Mm. Um, and uh, the reason I'm not a graduate is, and this this story starts in a pub. Um, so um, I'm embarrassed to say, but I'm Welsh and I love rugby, and uh, I. Um, and I was at a rugby match and I was 17 years old and actually that was in the kind of 82 is when we're talking about 81, 82 and uh, just then people were coming out of uni and they weren't getting jobs and I've watched some friends going through that and I was also fiercely independent mm. um, even then and uh, had a bit of a mind of my own and I met two blokes in a pub this story does get better I promise no, you great. And, <laughs> anyway two blokes that happened to be recruiters for that west and one of them was a graduate recruiter and one was a school leaver recruiter and um and i had a really long conversation with them uh and ended up giving them all my personal details with no thought for my own personal <laughs> safety and i just look back now and think what was i thinking and anyway old old school they sent me a letter and they sent me a letter with the application forms in for for both those uh, things and basically said if you decide to go to uni here's here's the application form and if you decide to come and join us as a school leaver um, and they had an almighty row between them about which I should do anyway the rest is history I filled in the form I went and had an interview and then I told my parents that I was going to start working in the following September and and um, I started in retail banking and then moved um, quite quickly through some various things but what was what was interesting was that kind of big seminal moment was when I realised that I couldn't stay uh, in Wales. I'd started work in Wales, and I went and found uh, the big boss and went and made sure I had a, a word with him. And at the time, I don't know what I was thinking really, because I sort of said to him, "I don't really think that this is going to be for me forever," and I don't really know, and, and I don't know why I had that conversation. And, and he asked me if I was interested in working in London. And then of course I said yes. And then really quite staggering when I look back, eight weeks later I was working in London. And you know, I'd never lived or worked in London before and it was all new and I moved into the corporate bank. Anyway, the good news is I'm not gonna do a blow by blow of every year. But the reason I told that story is that um, I think it's quite, um, sometimes we don't think that we should kind of maybe put our heads up and and talk about what it is we'd like to do or sometimes we don't know what we would like to do and mm. it's those conversations that are kind of serendipity where and I have lots of serendipity moments where I mm. talked to somebody and said that I was interested in X and then you know something followed um, and so I moved to London and I essentially stayed with the bank and did a whole variety of things um, in the corporate and investment bank um, mainly in the latter period in the capital markets, raising capital and money for companies. And then I got approached by another bank uh, because they'd seen some of the work that I was doing and uh, were interested in me moving across to kind of um, lead uh, their private placement business in the UK. And um, I moved and um, it, it, it didn't all go smoothly. That's the other story all the way through. You know, you see people's careers and mm. you think everything went absolutely smoothly. Actually, it was a bit disastrous when I first got there. Uh, good for me, clients moved across with me. That was all great. Um, 
but uh, the bank itself, I moved to Hambrose um, at that particular time, had a bit of an, an issue around some confidentiality things that they'd had some problems with and ended up having to be sold to um, Socgen uh, and part of the bank was spun off and I went with a bit that was spun off into a Canadian bank, Royal Bank of Canada. And that all happened literally within about six, seven months of me moving, having yeah. been in the kind of 15 years stable place. And so, but it, it's interesting, it's interesting, you know, you can decide how to respond to that. And I kind of, I'm a very much look forward, don't look back. You can't mm. change what happened in the past, but you can absolutely make a difference to what happens in the future. That doesn't mean I don't have, you know, a conscience and I'm not aware of the importance of being able to look back with pride, but I also think that that sometimes we get too caught up in what's happened in the past and don't think enough about the future. And and that stood me in good stead. Um, and then I was only there um, with that group of people who, fantastic, you know, influence on me, but it was very clear that it wouldn't be my final resting place largely because um, I felt very strongly about being able to give clients utterly independent advice and lo and behold KPMG came along uh, and approached me to see if I'd be interested they were just setting up a debt advisory business and um, I I, um, I kind of was a bit quizzical KPMG wasn't a natural place mm. you know should I stay in banking and I and I never looked back because um, I found a place where that had the same values as me, that wanted to to give that sort of independent advice to clients and so forth. And um, I joined and um, essentially the first, I guess, seven, eight years, nine years probably, I was very heavily focused on being in the market, you know, giving advice to clients, did some great, amazing work with some great, amazing people. Um, and then uh, I suppose, a coincidence of I was taking more interest in you know my position you mentioned my passion around equality and 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 it first sort of manifested itself in a sudden awareness that as a senior woman in a business actually I needed to have a voice um, and I needed to really uh, I wouldn't say use my position but take my responsibility seriously in terms of what influence could I bring to bear uh, having had the benefit of a career that had taken me into a senior position. I was a partner not long after I joined. Um, and so I, I sort of became much more aware of the need for me to, to use that voice. And that happened both inside and outside of the firm. So um, around the same time, I guess, a, a decade ago now, um, I was part of a very small group of, of women who with Helena Morrissey at the helm. Uh, established the 30% club to push for more women in the boardroom uh, which at the time I don't really think I really thought about as brave but now I look back you know and now it feels quite normal mm. when we talk about women in the boardroom and and so forth but at the time you know it wasn't really a subject you know you think we, we only had 9% women in the boardroom when you consider that 50% of the population are female pretty poor mm. and we're now very pr I'm proud that we've got to you know beyond 33 percent we'll keep moving forward and there are many 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 other facets now we need to to work upon um, but I think um, that sort of got me more interested in leadership and taking a, a kind of slightly bigger role in the firm which is then how I ended up 
uh, being uh, nominated by the partners to join the board and then subsequently becoming vice chair, deputy chair. And the privilege of that has been to not just, I suppose, take the leadership role, but also to learn so much. You know, one of the thing, one of the things I can't remember who said it. You know, life's not a destination. You know, or, you know, it's not. You don't end up stopping. And as you know, I've just stepped down as uh, deputy chair of the firm, long planned and not quite the exit I planned with COVID going on. Um, and now I, I see myself as moving, you know, at 56 into my next chapter. So it's said so many powerful things there um, that, that resonates, um, that's interesting. You know, one of the things you mentioned was about serendipity moments mm. and just using that to make decisions um, and not always having a plan, um, but just going with intuition, going with just how you feel. Um, how do you deal with that? Um, those moments uh, when you are faced with other people telling you what to do and um, and maybe you see other people doing a, a certain path what was the things that got you that allowed you to make decisions what I'd say is that as much as you know you end up having um, you agonize over these things at the end of the day, you listen to all of the advice that people give you, but then ultimately you have to go with, I, 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 I'm increasingly measuring things on what's going to give me joy, mm. what, what's going to make me happy, what's, what's going to help me feel like I'm still contributing. And maybe, maybe I'm in that place particularly at the moment. But, but I, think, I think the other thing is also, you will make mistakes, right? Um, and, and so my move from NatWest wasn't a mistake, but boy, it felt like a mistake at the mm. time. Um, and you're defined not by necessarily making all of the right decisions, but you can be defined by how you handle the situations in which you find yourself as well. So I suppose that's a rather long-winded way of saying to you, when, when people look back on other people's careers, they always look a lot simpler and easier and more planned than they ever yeah. were. And actually, when you're in the middle of it, you know, it's okay to feel, you know, a little bit apprehensive or mm. indeed fearful about it. But Amazing. So you mentioned about uh, being being able to move from one place to another, but not having a, de a degree. So you took the employment route straight after school mm. and you built your career from that. How have you managed to um, face into discussions, perceptions, about an individual who doesn't have a degree but is working in a very um in a professional world where nearly everybody's got a degree in well in kpmg it feels like that um or they say you need to go to the to, to university to be on this grad scheme um or you need xyz in order to to get this position or get promoted because other people have it how did you face that challenge or that tension of having to justify your route, your knowledge, your experience, your expertise, but without a piece of paper saying that you got a degree in this. It's really interesting. So look, let's not diminish the value of a degree and mm -hmm. let's not diminish the value of education. I happen to have just come via a very different route. And I do think actually the kind of the, um, the pendulum swinging a bit uh, away, not away from graduates and degrees, 
but having a more open mind about the different paths people can take into an organisation. And uh, you were asking me about proud moments, a really proud moment for me, and I remember feeling quite emotional about it. It was one of the occasions when, I think it was quite early on when I'd either joined the board or I, I was vice chair and we were, you know, we were um, welcoming in the admission of apprentices into the, into the firm who were going on to various different training schemes around the organisation. And I remember standing up in front of them and telling them that I wasn't a graduate. And I remember feeling that kind of A, shock and, and B, um, delight, I suppose, for them that, you know, actually it is possible to, to do it without a degree. Now, the truth is, Olu, that I used to hide the fact I didn't have a degree. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as with all of these things, I always remember, and it's interesting to me how little people notice when people don't, and it's, it, it was a big learning for me, when people don't speak and they don't say anything, typically it's because they, um, people don't notice sometimes. And what used to happen was I'd be in a group of people when I was you know, younger uh, and they'd be talking about which university they went to yeah. and university life. And I, it wasn't a conversation that I could participate in. Mm. And um, I learned very quickly that all I had to do was be silent. And it was interesting how few people noticed that I hadn't, I wasn't participating in the conversation. It was a big learning for me about how how can you ever be, how can you be inclusive if you're not listening and noticing how other people are feeling. And I suppose I'm thankful nobody really did ask because I never had to explain myself. But it, it it's quite an interesting. And now, of course, uh, I talk about it a lot, partially because. Uh, I feel a little bit of a responsibility, you know, about having hidden it for quite some time. And I didn't hide it because I was ashamed of it. I hid it because of all of the expectations that, that you describe uh, that come along with, you know, that, those labels that, that people give people. Um, but I do think that the world is changing. And, you know, when I talk to kind of other big employers particularly, I think people are much more open-minded now. But, you know, the truth is there'll always be gating items for any organisation for, for where you go in. And I think what I would say, though, is eventually it becomes less relevant mm. because, you know, you're proving yourself in a kind of work context. You're delivering in a work context. And there's no easy path here, right? You know, when people say to me, oh, you know, what's the secret of success? Well, I do start with hard work. Right. And delivering. So, you know, when people are asking you to deliver good quality work or whatever else, that's the stuff that gets you the attention. So, you know, I think serendipity does play a part, but I think also your track record and, and how you show up is also a factor in in what people think of you. And, I, you know, luckily for me, uh, I moved kind of past the issue or isn't she a graduate into yeah, she delivers great work and people notice that more than what was written on my CV. And that happens, it does happen for everybody eventually. Mm. So that is, I would call that for you, you know, if you don't mind me saying, a proud moment because you were able to not shrug off but also just like not allow yourself to be um, stigmatised and you didn't allow yourself to, to be labelled. Um, and you had the confidence and eventually to kind of come out and say, look, I don't have a degree, but look where I am and look what I've done. Um, and for some people listening as well, um, they, 
they face some of those conversations and those questions in life. I don't have this, I don't have that, I'm not good enough, imposter syndrome, um, but I still have big dreams and like, how do I get to, to that place but without what most of, people, most of the people that I look up, I look up to have? Mm. Um, so how did you, you kind of explained anyway that you got the confidence, but in more detail, because this is like a growth moment, how did you um, overcome imposter syndrome if you did have any, um, whether that was in the workplace at KPMG or before KPMG? Um, how did you overcome the fear of not being good enough? You never overcome that fear. Right. <laughs> so, so, so oh, look, I hate to, listeners, I hate to burst the bubble. Um, but, you know, I always, uh, imposter syndrome is really interesting to me, that there, this notion that nobody has imposter syndrome, hmm. that you reach a point where you don't have imposter syndrome. You just have imposter syndrome about new and different things, right? Because in, in, in a sense, it's when the insecurity becomes unhealthy that, that it becomes a problem. But in a way, you know, anybody who believes their own Kool-Aid that they are so good that, that they haven't got things that they can continue to learn or that they're not worrying about, it's when it tips over into the unhealthy that it's a problem. And in, in mm. some respects, I hate to say this, there's an unhealthy, there is a healthy amount of imposter syndrome that we all need to have to keep us on our toes, to keep us moving forward, etc. So that's kind of a little speech on imposter syndrome that actually don't think that you're, that, well, this is my personal perspective on it. I don't, I don't think we should be striving to extinguish it completely because then where is our humility and where is our humanity and where is our reality about who we are and what we are? And I'd, and I'd like to think I've never lost sight of that. I think I'm very lucky. I've talked about my husband. He keeps me super grounded. You've met him, <laughs> right? He keeps me super grounded. Yeah. And um, you need people like that around you. Otherwise, you know, you do start drinking your own Kool-Aid. But coming back to this sort of overcoming things, it's, it's interesting because I often get asked, oh, you know, how is it being a woman? Because, you know, I come from a generation where very, very often, and even now periodically, sad as it is I can find myself as the only woman in the room much much rarer now but um, but not not necessarily not it isn't that it doesn't ever happen now yeah. and um, what I would say has helped me I've looked back and thought how, how is it that I have navigated some of this stuff mm. and whether it was purposeful I don't know but I think I sometimes ignored the fact that I had labels right. so you know so i i think the fact is i never behaved like somebody who wasn't a graduate that doesn't mean i was overconfident or or blagging i i don't mean it like that but i kind of approached things as i can do this job and uh tried not to to, to not let it consume me that that i and, and of course there were moments where it felt more apparent um, and the same is true of, of, of many of our characteristics. And I don't want to diminish this, but you know, you, your viewers won't know, or maybe they can tell with me sitting down next to you because you're so much bigger than me. But, <laughs> you know, I'm a small person as well, right? Yeah. I'm only, as you know, I'm only five foot in, in flats, and which is why I wear, you know, when I'm not running around the house and doing our kind of living like we are now, I used to wear three, four inch heels. And I didn't wear them because anybody told me to. I wore mm. them because I liked being a little bit taller. <laughs> so, but, but, 
you know, the purpose of, of flagging that is that, you know, you can, there are many people who've said to me, I didn't realize you were as short as you are. Mm. And I think you have the opportunity to, to embody who you want to be. There's a great book and I keep recommending it and he's really happy about it, the author. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a book called Embodied Leadership by a guy called Pete Hamill. Uh, and Pete, uh, I've worked with Pete, he's a really, really good guy. And the book, and I'll, I won't do it justice, in fact he won't like this bit because <laughs> I won't do it justice, but, but the way I see the book is, is he's talking about not just about the kind of skills and qualifications you have, he's talking about who do you want to show up as, as a leader and as a person. And I see it more as, a, almost more importantly, as a person. And I think you can, you can show up as the, I could have shown up as the, you know, non-graduate small female who had a very low opinion of herself or I could show up as somebody who was still in touch with my humility humanity hopefully but didn't show up as as a small person and and you know if you want to add the graduate bit into it and all the rest of it and I think sometimes we allow ourselves to be labeled and for some people it's harder than others I recognize that but but I do think sometimes letting those labels overcome us is is the route is is the route to us being more unhappy i don't know if, does that make any sense to you um but i think i think you asked me a really interesting question was you know it didn't happen with some sort of light bulb moment it happened over time mm. when you kind of you know you get nudged into it in a way you see something happening you think well no that can't be right and maybe maybe i need to say something here and i think um one of the benefits of having had a bit of career kind of pathway, I suppose, was that I was, I was seen as somebody who delivered, who was a serious business person, mm. as much as the person who was a voice around, hopefully around women and, and in, fact, in fact, social equality and, and equality more broadly. And I don't, you know, even now when I just hear myself say that, that sounds awfully grand for what I feel like I've done, but, you know, mm -hmm. others will be, be the judge of that. Um, it, it's, but it, it's, it's about whether you care enough. And then, and then I think it's how you do, how you do it as well. You know, I, I, I'd like to think, I mean, I've had my moments, but I'd like to think that it hasn't largely been banging people over the head and saying, you know, this is really important and you're not listening. It's been at times more subtle than that. Um, you know, the gentle nudge, the how do you think you made that person feel? You know, those things are just as important as being, you know, I'm proud of, of having been part of that original crowd at the, you know, that was involved in setting up the 30% club. Uh, and it was a very small crowd at that time. Um, but it, I, di I didn't do it because it was, I was making, I, I, it's, for me, it's just as important, all the small things that you do, the people that you spend time with, mm. the interest that you take in people. We shouldn't underestimate those things. And there are lots of people doing, doing those things. And so um, I'm not sure I've answered your question because I don't think it ever happens as some sort of light bulb moment. Mm. I think it, it happens by osmosis and it happens because you get a bigger and bigger voice and, and eventually, hopefully, people are listening to you a yeah. little bit. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's hard to, you only connect the dots looking backwards, right? Mm. And you have to kind of find place, things in your story that make sense to you. 
And at the moment, you might not have used that logic because you're just making decisions. But when you look back, you might see a trend. You might say, okay, a number of things happened that made me feel this way, that made me become who I am today or made me passionate about this particular issue. Yeah, no, I mean, I've done plenty of looking back. And, mm. and I, think, I think the one thing I will say is that um, I, um, I definitely know what I'm passionate about and the minute that I found the passion. So I found a passion for helping other women. Mm. And, and for me, the 30% Club was a manifestation of that. Um, but I, what, I, what I suppose I'm saying to you is, I don't think there's a, tra a, a light, I think the only light bulb moment would be, did it take me longer to find out what I was passionate about than I should have, right? So, you know, you look back and think, oh, could I have started doing X, Y, or Z earlier? I don't regret anything I didn't do or the speed at which I did it, but um, I definitely think that you, you are always well, it's always good advice to yourself to think about, is this making me passionate? Does mm. it make me want to fight for something? And certainly when I, I'd worked as hard as I had um, as a woman, I wanted to make sure that women behind, coming behind me, uh, even if they worked equally hard, were having a, a better time of it. There's no question about that. So I've kind of said in the past that um, the last decade was around um, move businesses moving from profit to purpose. Mm. And in this decade, 2020 onwards, I think it's about businesses moving from purpose to activism mm. um, and we're seeing a lot more CEO activism just recently Sainsbury co-op you know CEOs coming out to say that they don't stand with racism you know they they're passionate about equality and they want to make a difference at least um, whether that's just perception or you know, at least it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's being communicated um, how do you feel about CEO activism um, and how have you shown up in your in your career to be an uh, advocate for women? Um, and and a second part to that question is why? Why do you think you have to do that if 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 you've done it? Well, I th I think um, what you're really hitting upon is is what is business's role in society? Mm. You know, and we can have a debate about whether you call it activism. But I would say, I think companies, I think the pandemic, I think Black Lives Matter, I think there've been this confluence of things over the course of the last six, 12 months that have made businesses understand how important it is for them to work out what their role is in society. And I'm not suggesting that they didn't think they had a role in society previously, but I think if you want to call it activism, I think they are starting to see, and some companies, everybody was on a, in a different, slightly different place on this. Uh, they're starting to see that that role is critical, mm. not just from a, a social justice perspective, which by the way, I think should be a, a big driver of company behavior. And I think doesn't get talked about enough. But as a driver of, you know, customer engagement, 
Um, and in fact, the whole purpose of why the business is doing whatever the business is doing. So I, I think uh, we're seeing this very much, this blurring of the edges between, you know, I think historically what happened was that, and I've talked about this, which is, you know, there was this blur, that there was this sort of government did this and business did that. And those edges got super blurred during uh, the last six, 12 months for all of the reasons that, that we know. And I think they will continue to remain blurred because I think the scale of some of the challenges we face as a society, whether you think about climate change or whether you think about the distribution of wealth, not just within the UK, but across the world, you know, all of those questions are now being raised and they are not going to get solved by a single government or a collection of governments. They're going to require proper effort across multiple facets of life, which includes business. And I think the businesses that sit on their hands and stand on the sidelines on any of these topics, whether it's equality, uh, climate change, etc., um, are going to get left behind because I think they are the single biggest issues that we face aside from and the one i'd add on which is less of a well i suppose is no i think is a societal question is technological change you know how how are all of these things going to play into who we become as countries who we mm -hmm. become as human beings uh, interfacing with each other so in a sense you know i'd i'd le I, I actually believe and i know you know a number of of CEOs who, if you if you had them sat on this sofa with you, would feel as passionately as I do about the role that leadership will need to play. But in a sense, um, it, it, there's going to be no excuse for those that even aren't thinking like that right now, because mm. that that's the direction. Well, that's what I hope is the direction of travel. I believe that it has to be the direction of travel, and I think then the question is what how does that manifest itself how do companies and businesses show up amazing great answer my podcast is about growth moments and the moment you decided to level up transform yourself um and you've spoken about a, a number of those different moments but were there any challenging moments um that you had to overcome um in any part of your career there have been disappointments. Mm. Um, yeah, so how do you so, overcome the disappointment? Yeah, exactly. And so, and, 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 and you know, when, you, when, I, when I think about it now, and, it, and the reason I want to use this particular example is I think loads of people go through this one, which is I didn't get promoted when I thought I should be promoted. Mm. And boy, was I cross. Yeah. I think I was, um, I would have been like 27, 28. Early on in my career, I had the classic didn't get promoted when I thought I deserved to be promoted. Worked mm. my worked my butt off. I mean, can I say that? Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, and, you know, had that whole letdown of, you know, everybody saying I was doing a great job, but they didn't promote me. I mean, what's that all about? Mm -hmm. Disconnect. Uh, Massive disconnect. <laughs> Massive disconnect. And, um, and, I, and I remember going through the kind of like anger i'm really really cross with the organization i don't understand how this has happened blah 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 and then i remember the best thing i did was i kind of doubled down and really focused on how i was going to get that next promotion and i kind of let the anger pass and so forth um and 
when I got promoted, what was interesting was when I reflected on it, I was better. I probably would have managed, by the way, if I'd been promoted. But you know, state the facts. <laughs> state the facts here. But I was better for having waited whatever it was another six months. I think they made me wait before they promoted me. Mm. And I never really got a really good rational reason as to why, which is probably why I got a little bit angry about the whole thing. And I'm sure for listeners, this may be familiar territory. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that, that what I would say is that you can't get defined by your dif disappointments. You kind of have to be defined by how you react to those disappointments as much. And I remember I kind of gave them no reason to not promote me the next time round. And not that I ever thought there was, as you can see, I'm still holding it here, right? Oh. There's still no reason why they didn't promote me. Exactly. <laughs> but, uh, but on the other hand, I can see that I was a far better, better equipped six months later. And so I have to acknowledge that. Mm. So are you, what you're saying is that you, you don't, you're not defined by your disappointment but more about the reaction of how you exactly. choose to, to, to yeah. face into that. Exactly. Um, and, and was that just through conversations with your husband maybe at the time or people around you? What made you have that mindset? I think that being able to look forward, not back is quite, um, it, I certainly think when I look at, at who I am, uh, don't get me wrong, I agonise over things and um, I have a little phrase I picked up. I was reading a Harvard Business Review article. I'm sure I've told you this story before. Which one? Um, which was uh, calibrate, don't catastrophize. I haven't told you that. No. So anyway, I mean, it's not a story. I mean, it, it, it was an article that summed up for me that, you know, that little bird on your shoulder, that person on your soul shoulder who's telling you everything's a disaster mm -hmm. and you start believing them. Uh, that's the catastrophizing person. And then the calibrate person is the, how do you keep grounded? How do you keep it in perspective? How do you keep moving forward? And I think um, I've done my fair, of, fair share of catastrophizing from time to time. I think we all do. But I think that ability to look forward is, is one that I think um, I would um, encourage people to, to think about how often are they thinking what they could have done as opposed to what they can do going forward how do you how did you build your brand mm. and you know you can define your brand whatever way you think it's defined or perceived um so uh first of all i don't think i was i was uh thoughtful enough about this i, I i'd like to say that i had some big plan but even now, I mean, probably I don't do as good a job as you do with <laughs> no, your brand. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in, in all seriousness, I think the biggest thing for me is how do you stay authentic to your true self? Because I don't think you can, you can be somebody. You have to be you. And you, you have to, to work out what, what at the heart. And so one of the things I'd, I'd like to think is that I'm a very, um, I'm quite an open, authentic person. And um, I struggle, I, I would struggle to be anything but that, if I can put it that way. Um, and obviously, as I say, you know, it's all very well to, to kind of think about brands, but um, you will be 
you know, people will be the judge of what they what they describe you as is who's you, what what your brand is, right? Mm. And um, you know, actually, the words I'd use for me, you know, are probably I hope people think that I care. I hope people think that I'm trying to do my very best in whatever circumstances I'm presented with. Um, I I I want. I'd like to think that people think that I have a humility about me, but I think they also would see that I'm, I can be quite steely and um, I can, you know, make difficult decisions and, and often have had to. Um, and I think, I think what I've just described for you are things that I've learned along the way. So, you know, I, I don't think I mean, I know that they tell you you should be able to describe yourself in two minutes in a lift and mm. all of this sort of stuff. And can you do it? And, and I agree with that. I mean, I agree with some of those philosophical points. But I think I think brand is about finding out who you are uh, for yourself and, and who you want to be in the world. And I think if you can do that, then actually you're not creating a brand. You're just being you. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Uh, but people need to find their authenticity. Yeah. If they don't know what it is, or yeah, then it's hard for them to to be their best self. Or their, yeah. Um, but one one thing I would say is that um, what I don't want to diminish is is the the thinking about how people see you mm. and and how you show up, um, and and that's a different question, which is you know because I, one of the things I, I once said was, you know, I bring, I bring my whole, whole self to work, but, but there are parts of me that probably shouldn't be seen in the office, right? And, and I, don't, I don't know quite what I mean by that. <laughs> it sounds good. What I mean by that is that, um, you know, you have your professional persona mm. and you have your personal persona and and it isn't that I'm so radical. I don't think you want to be so radically different in those two personas. But but at the end of the day, when you're in a kind of whether it's not even just in an office environment, but you're operating in a business context, it's not the same mm. as you know when I'm with my girlfriends, dancing, doing whatever it is that I do, and maybe being slightly more crazy than I'd ever give the impression that I'm capable of being in the office. Well, you can't be crazy <laughs> and professional. <laughs> Probably not a great combo. Well, but but I think I think you can be fun loving, and I think you yeah. can you know you can bring lots of who you are, and you know whether you've got a sense of humour. My husband, by the way, doesn't think I'm funny. Just for the record, oh, really? I think I'm hilarious sometimes, but yeah, you know yeah. apparently I'm not funny. Um, keeps you grounded. Keeps me grounded. Um, but I, you know, in all seriousness, I do think that it, it's naive to think that you, you you can't. You need to bring large parts of yourself. And you want to bring most of yourself into your kind of work environment, but you do need to 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 think about what is your professional persona, as long as it's a professional persona that is true to you mm. and and true to your values and true to who you want to be. Yeah, does that um, makes sense. Yeah, it does. It does. Thank you. Do you use or do you have mentors, and what's your view on on their impact in your life? Well, I think. Um, everybody needs mentors and whether you call them mentors whether you, you know th there's you know there's a whole definition there we can talk about coaching mentoring sponsorship they're all slightly different things the first question is do you have a group of people 
And by the way, I, I don't think it's sat in one person. You know, I don't think, I don't think it's possible uh, to have one person who's providing you with the sort of support, advice, counsel, challenge. By the way, challenge is very important. Somebody's challenging your thinking. That never sits and resides in one person, and, and, and it usually evolves over time. Mm. You know, in a, a 38-year career, I've got people that I still talk to from when I was 25, right the way through to people I've only met in the last kind of couple of years who uh, I have an affinity to and we have a kind of mutually respectful relationship. The other thing is that I think people confuse it that it has to be people kind of directly in your field, etc. And I always use the example and she always cringes if she ever hears any of this stuff, which is I have a girlfriend uh, who we've known each other since we were six years of age and she's like my closest friend and our lives could not have taken more different paths. Mm. So I have worked throughout, I've had two children, I've sort of worked, worked almost constantly through all of that. Um, and she's, she was um, a very, very, very good midwife and in the medical profession and uh, gave up work in her late twenties um, and hasn't worked since and yet she has a very full and active life, but she is the one person that I can go to with pretty much anything, and she will be my conscience, she'll be my um, challenge, uh, and she'll also have, back to keeping you grounded and keeping things in perspective, she's that person for me. Mm. And, and you know, as you may have gathered, I have huge love for her, and, and um, you know, she is officially my best friend, and I know it, 56. I don't know whether you're meant to have best friends at 56, <laughs> but she is my yeah, bestie. Of course you can. It expire. <laughs> no, but I don't know. It's just the, the, the notion they have one best friend. It's just like I've got lots of friends, but she is yeah. officially my best friend. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I say that because I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact that, you know, yes, of course, I, love, I loved mentoring people inside KPMG, and of course I could give them a kind of a very knowledgeable perspective from within mm. the organization but sometimes we, we 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 fail to value the kind of breadth of of mentorship that that we sometimes need and support that we need mm. no that was a good answer and i like the way you um shout out to your best friend but um i Indeed. like the way that you helen, helen shout out <laughs> helen um that you you broke down the people who impacted into your life as like whether they're mentors, coach, or a sponsor, mm -hmm. it's quite. It's really helpful to get that clarity because some people, you know, they don't know the difference between the three. Mm -hmm. um, maybe you can just quickly clarify sure. what you mean by uh, the difference and how do you spot the difference um, in people? Well, I think. Um, well, this is my definition. I'm sure um, uh, high, more highly qualified people than me would make would define it differently, but. I think coaching is very often um, somebody who is there to help you with a specific kind of skill, capability, uh, and has a kind of shelf life, right? I think, um, I think mentors, um, as I say, I, I don't think, I think they're people that you can go to, that you feel you can be open with your questions about, that you can talk to um, about issues or indeed opportunities and get a kind of rounded and uh, perspective but they are not the people who unlike sponsors 
are going to drive your career. And the, pe the thing that people most confuse is mentors and sponsors, in my experience. And particularly if they're within your organisation. And the difference with a sponsor is that they have a vested interest in progressing your career. They have a vested interest in pushing you forward, in giving you opportunity, in taking you with them. And one of the things that, that's quite interesting to me is that there is, in a mentoring relationship, yes, somebody's giving, but they don't have a vested interest in your career. In a sponsorship relationship, they have a vested interest in your career and yeah. they're helping push you forward. And the reason they're doing that is often there's a mutuality of interest. Yeah. You know, so uh, if I look back, I ha I've had some great sponsors, people who've given me opportunities, but the reason they've stayed sponsors for me is because I've delivered for them. Whereas in mentoring, that relationship doesn't exist. It's, it's purely a kind of developmental and maybe you'll discuss things and you'll be support and you'll feel supported, but they're not going to drive your career for you. Mm, Whereas true. a sponsor isn't going to drive your career for you, but they're going to drive your career with you. Mm. Um, and so I think, I think that's, and the reason people sponsor people is typically because they do a good job and make them look good. Mm. That was really good. That was really good. So, um, so what books uh, have made an impact in your life? Oh, wow, that's a big question. Um, and actually, uh, if you were asking me that question, I'd include fiction. But for the purpose of this conversation, yeah. I'll, I'll stick to kind of vaguely business related ones. And so I've mentioned embodied leadership. Uh, the other one, which I've read relatively, uh, so these are kind of things that are recent rather than in the past was leadership by algorithm which is by um, a guy called David de Kramer, who um, essentially the book is, how are we going to lead in a world that becomes so technologically advanced? And you know, the, the philosophical questions it asks are about the unintended consequences of us having access to as much data as we're gonna have, and, mm. and how are we going to, uh, and what is the role of leadership in a technologically enabled world, which, I think it's a really interesting set of questions and, and one that, that is, is interesting to me. And then very recently, and, and I had the privilege, and literally this is in the last week, and I kind of commend this, it's more of a, a lecture to read rather than a book, is um, C.S. Lewis, obviously, um, Lion, Witch, the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis. Mm. Uh, he was a great um, ethicist and moralist and, and, and philosopher. And he uh, did the memorial lecture at King's College in 1944. And, and I think the title of his lecture was The Inner Ring, but I heard uh, somebody talking about it um, at an event that I was um, facilitating last week, and only last week. And they framed it as the lure of the inner ring. And basically he asks questions about, you know, what do we as what is expected of us as leaders effectively and how might we um, be affected negatively about our desire so much desire to get to the top of the tree to be part of that crowd what might we lose of ourselves along the way and before we forget before we know it we forget the bits of ourselves that we've lost mm. uh, and he puts it in a kind of an ethical context and it's um it's quite a read but it's a really really worthwhile read because 
it comes back to to something I suppose that I said and and I don't know that I set about it with as much purpose as maybe I I should have or maybe sorry I did set about it with purpose but I didn't do it consciously at the time which is is that holding on to who you are and and what you stand for and and what matters to you becomes almost more important the older you get the more responsibility you get not almost it does become more important and and knowing that is a hugely powerful mm. thing to hold on to great books and I'm definitely going to look into those as well um, what advice would you give your younger self uh, definitely the calibrate don't catastrophize okay. um, I, I, I think just even just having that phrase in your head helps think about things and get them into perspective the other thing I'd say is is doing things that make you feel really uncomfortable because one of the things that's interesting to me is that, and, and as you get older, and, I, and I'm talking now once you get past your kind of late 20s into your 30s, um, actually uh, the things that you might have done when you were 18, 19, 20, that you thought, oh, well, I'll just give it a go. You get to your late 20s and your 30s and they suddenly somehow feel like bigger risks and bigger things to do. Mm. And I think that, um, inherently trying to hold on to that kind of you know not seeing shadows around every corner um, and and taking life on with both hands is is a really good thing to do and so yeah it has to be calculated you know you have to take calculated risk I'm not suggesting you'll jump off the side of a building or whatever yeah. else but but I do think that um, uh, the overthinking, the catastrophizing, you put all of that together and you start taking less risk. Mm. And I think um, thinking about things less as a risk and more an opportunity. Oh, great. The, the other thing that I would say is do things that you're afraid of, right? Um, so I'll give you an example of that. Uh, I don't mind doing this now and I don't mind standing on a stage in front of hundreds of people mm. but I used to hate it mm. and I literally had to fight the fear of getting up on stage in front of hundreds of people and so when you see people who do it and you say oh gosh they're such a natural there are those people on the planet and God bless them and you know lucky them but most of us have to work really really hard at and, and, and I'm using that as an example of mm. some things that make you feel really uncomfortable, particularly if they, they happen to be something that people expect you to be able to do as a leader. Yeah. You kind of have to just go and do them. Yeah. So that would be my, my number one. Yeah, that's a good one. I like that. Thank you, uh, Mel, for joining the podcast um, and speaking your own truth, speaking. Um, through humility, honesty, integrity. Uh, appreciate your thoughts. Um, and yeah, I definitely learned a lot from this conversation and I hope the people who are listening also learn, um, learn as much as I did. Um, and yeah, thank you for taking the time to, to be on the show. Well, it's always, always a joy to talk to you. And um, you always ask me questions that make me think. So. <laughs> I've got a few more things to go and reflect on myself, but oh, uh, I really enjoyed the conversation, so thank you, Ollie. You're welcome. Perfect.